Several weeks ago, we started a study in the book of Matthew at the beginning of chapter 26. Chapters 26, 27, and 28 of Matthew's gospel are what we would call his passion narrative. This is his account of the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've set our eyes on the cross through the Easter season. Easter morning, we will gather here and uh, we're going to see the tomb empty and we're going to celebrate together what Christ has done for our salvation. So here's where we've been so far uh, in chapter 26. We've seen Jesus betrayed by Judas. We saw Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we saw him face a kangaroo court of religious leaders, a mock trial. Uh, and, uh, and then in that, uh, after the mock trial or while that's going on, we studied last week Peter and his three denials of Jesus, uh, and so today we pick up in chapter 27, uh, where Jesus is still brought in front of authorities. So I want to encourage you to have your Bible open or turned on, something to write on and write with. If you need a title for this morning's sermon, uh, the title is A Portrait in Silence. A Portrait in Silence. Uh, let me tell you some names that you don't know and ask you to guess what they have in common. Matoi Yamamoto of Japan, uh, Samir Strati of Albania, and Mike Breach of New York. You know what these three guys have in common? They're all artists, and they are artists who work in strange mediums, and they do portraits in those strange mediums. So Matoi Yamamoto of Japan, his chosen medium is table salt. Uh, Samir Strati of Albania, he does portraits using staples. Mike Breach of New York, he does portraits in latte foam. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I want to go to that gallery. And so do you. It's, uh, it's amazing what these people are able to do in their creativity and how they can take common things and out of them emerge these portraits of people that we would probably recognize. Uh, the passage we're studying today gives us a portrait of Jesus, and it's a portrait of Jesus in most unusual mediums. It's mediums of darkness and silence and sin. It's, it's a crushing way to paint a portrait of a person. Uh, but one thing we found through our study of Matthew's passion narrative is that the tension just ratchets up with every single scene. And today is no different. It's not a light passage. This is not some comical interlude. This is heavy as we see Jesus stand before Roman authorities and hear people call for his death. But it's in that very scene that we see beautiful images of Jesus rise to the surface. He doesn't say very much in this episode. In, in fact, he only says one line. But in all of that silence and all of the darkness surrounding him, a portrait of Jesus emerges. And so my goal today is for you to understand better these various facets of who Jesus is so that you might walk with him in faith. If we study this passage right, we're going to see Jesus more clearly. And the Jesus we discover is one who is incredibly wonderful, worthy of our trust, worthy of our very lives. And so in order to show you these different facets of Jesus, I want to share with you three pictures of Jesus that emerge from the story. And I want you to follow along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 1. 
Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. And then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they shouted. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility and all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It's a heavy scene, to say the least. But in this pressure cooker moment, the realities of who Jesus is shines bright to people like you and I who need a Savior like this who will endure all these things for the sake of our salvation. So let me share with you this morning three portraits of Jesus that emerge from this story. The first portrait, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus is the betrayed life giver. What do we see of Jesus in this story, especially in the episode with Judas? Jesus is the betrayed life giver. Verses 1 through 10 spell this out for us. Judas is such a polarizing figure in the New Testament. His story is strikingly sad. Starting in verse 3, he emerges back into the scene. We last saw him at the Garden of Gethsemane where he kisses Jesus and betrays him in the night. 
But now Judas is gripped by remorse once he learns that Jesus is going to be killed. And so he comes back to the men with whom he previously colluded. And why? Well, it's possible that Judas comes back to these men because he's seeking some sort of spiritual counsel or comfort. Because he runs into them and he states clearly his awareness of what he's done. I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. But he finds no sympathy from these religious leaders. Right? Look at their response to him in verse 4. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. It's your fault. This is your thing. You took the money. You made the deal. Now you've got to live with it. He finds no sympathy, no counsel, no strength from them. Judas, in his anguish, then throws down the money he's been paid. He runs out into a field, and there he ends his life. Matthew goes on then to describe what the religious leaders do. They gather up the 30 pieces of silver and they have a discussion about what should be done with the money. They say this, it can't go back into the temple checking account, so to speak, because this is blood money. It's unclean. It's against the law for this money to go into the temple treasury. The hypocrisy in this moment is absolutely stunning because that money first came from the temple treasury. They took it out of temple funds. They used it to concoct charges against an innocent man. They are crafting his execution. They will kill an innocent one. And here they are trying to figure out what to do with 30 pieces of silver. It's an appalling scene. It's incredible the hypocrisy on display in this story by these religious leaders as they try to get the coins right so that they can murder an innocent man. Now, Spurgeon said once, uh, whenever a man is about to stab religion, first he cozies up to it. That's what we see in these religious leaders. Now here's what happens when you and I read this story. It, any applicable truth to our lives is often overshadowed by our curiosity surrounding Judas's death. His suicide gets the spotlight, and, and it, it takes us from seeing the bigger picture of what's going on here. But just so that we're fair to our curiosities, let's take a moment and talk about the reality of Judas's suicide and what that means. I grew up in a system of belief that taught this, that if you were to take your own life, you are automatically condemned. And the problem with this teaching is though it has been spoken from pulpits and in Bible study groups and by well-meaning friends, the truth is this, that teaching is not found in Scripture. In Judas, we don't see a person who is condemned because of the way he chooses to end his life. Now, when I look at Judas, I do see a man who is condemned, but condemned by his actions, not condemned by his death. And that's the way the disciples saw Judas's life also. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are gathered together and they realize we need to add one more disciple to our group in order to have an even 12. And Peter gives a speech explaining why they need to do this. And in that speech, he talks about Judas and Judas's sin. And when he talks about Judas as one who is condemned, he, he doesn't do so in reference to his death, but in reference to his life. Judas betrays Jesus. Judas feels remorse, but he doesn't repent. Instead of running to God, he runs to the priests. There's much in Judas's story that would lead us to think that 
his eternity was apart from our heavenly Father. But nothing about his death would confirm that. So if you have been told or you have heard from the church or you believe that suicide is automatic condemnation, you have heard and you believe wrong. Scripture is abundantly clear on this point. Those who belong to Christ always belong to Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your grief is too long and too hard and too complicated to be messed up by heretical teaching. So there's hope, more than a little hope. There's vast hope in Jesus Christ, even for our loved ones who have made tragic choices in their illnesses. So if you are one who are, who's walking this road of grief still today, my encouragement to you is to cling to Christ and his word. Let this voice be the voice that instructs your understanding of God's love and grace and mercy and salvation for those who have made an awful decision. And if you are someone this morning who wrestles with thoughts of suicide, my brother and sister, do not... Quit fighting those self-destructive thoughts. There is hope for you in Jesus Christ. And I know it may seem like these thoughts aren't going to go away. I know the days may seem dark from time to time. But keep talking to your people. Keep reaching out for help. Do not stop trusting in Christ. In him there is an abundance of hope for every heartache, every brokenness, every sorrow. He will not let you down. I promise he will not. This passage may not feel like a hope-filled passage because it's so heavy and dark, but, but I think the point of the passage is to meet us in our point of brokenness. One recurring theme in, in Matthew's account of Christ's death and resurrection is our failure. Right? Haven't we seen this week after week? We get together, we get our noses in the Word, and we see our sinful failures reflected in the disciples' choices, their arrogance, their denials of Jesus, their failure to, to understand what's happening. You and I are reflected over and over again as sinful failures in this passage. In fact, this morning you might have thought to yourself, hey, Preacher, it'd be okay if we talked about something different for a change. We, we get it. We're sinners. This isn't very honeymoony whenever you talk this way every Sunday. But I think Matthew does this intentionally because you and I have such a difficult time believing that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We are so self-sufficient, so self-reliant, so sure that we've got it figured out, so sure that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Over and over again, we need to be confronted with the reality that I am broken and apart from Christ. I am, I'm dead in my sin. But Matthew's point is not just to beat us up, not just to repeatedly uh, take us to a place where we feel horrible about ourselves, but in seeing the reality of our sin, the glory and hope and life-giving truth of Jesus Christ shines even brighter. I'm broken, you're broken, we're all messed up. Christ is the one who sets it all right whenever our trust is in him. So what you and I need to do when we read this is we need to think to ourselves, look, I don't want to miss what Judas missed. 
When I see my sin and my brokenness, the place I'm going to run is to Jesus Christ, the one who gives life to everyone who turns to him in faith. He will not turn you away. And you've made big mistakes. You've messed up royally. You've denied and you've betrayed and, and you've said he doesn't even exist. You've, made, you've done all. Or you've been religious and you've just lived for your appetites. I'm telling you, you come to Jesus Christ. He makes you whole. He gives you life everlasting life when we turn from our sin and we trust in him. Jesus is the betrayed life giver. He gives life, hope, salvation to all those who come to him. There's a second portrait of Jesus in this story. He's a betrayed life giver first. Second, Jesus is the dismissed king. In verses 11 through 19, Jesus is the dismissed king. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, I did a quick drive-by of, of what the Roman judicial system was like for Jesus. Here's a little history lesson for you real quick, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, this whole scene takes place in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city in a county, if you will. That county is called Judea. Judea belongs to the Roman Empire. That's the mothership. And Rome had a unique way of ruling all of its subjects. It didn't force everyone to fall into the Roman way. It allowed local power structures to still exist. So religious courts and religious systems, you can do all of that as long as you pay your taxes to Rome and you also don't uh, revolt or rise up against the emperor. But in order to keep some checks and balances in place, Rome would appoint governors over their different regions to make sure that rule was handled rightly. And also, another way they did their checks and balances was Rome held the power of the death penalty. So local magistrates or religious leaders could not decide who would live and who would die. Rome was the one who would make that choice. And so in this whole scene, what's happening is the religious leaders are trying to concoct a way to convince the Rome-appointed governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, to convince him to kill Jesus. And that's where we started at verse 1, chapter 27. They had conspired together. They figured out, here's the charges we'll bring to Pilate in order to get Jesus executed. They cannot say to Pilate, this man has committed blasphemy. He does not care. In fact, the Jews, by comparison to Pilate, are a bunch of atheists. They deny every god except for one. Pilate believes in so many gods. So he doesn't care what happens in their temple courts. But if they come to Pilate and they say, this man is committing treason against the emperor, setting himself up as a king, that's going to get Pilate's ears. Pilate, appointed by Rome, a military general, brutal by reputation, a known killer of Jewish peoples, uh, and very interested in his political advancement. And the way he handles this assignment in this little outcropping, this hotbed called Judea, the way he handles that is going to dictate his political future in the empire. And so the religious leaders bring Jesus before Pilate. And Matthew gives us an abbreviated version of this entire courtroom scene. You read other Gospels and you find that Jesus meets with Pilate first, and then Pilate, in an effort to try and escape responsibility, sends Jesus to another governor who just happens to be in town that weekend. Uh, that governor, Herod Antipas, wants nothing to do with it. He sends Jesus back to Pilate. But Matthew shrinks it all down for us. 
it just into this one interaction between Jesus and Pilate. So Pontius Pilate, Roman governor, in charge of a legion of soldiers, that's over 10,000 soldiers, a man of great power and influence, stands before Jesus, who's been beat up through the night, and he asks him this question, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 11. Now when he asks it, he's asking it in a literal way, not a theological way. Are you the king, like crown, throne, scepter? Are you a ruler of the Jews? And in all four Gospels, when he asks this question of Jesus, the you is emphatic. Are you the king of the Jews? In his question, he communicates disdain for Jesus on Jesus' appearance. And this is the only place where Jesus speaks in the passage we've read today. Jesus' answer is very simple. He says, yes, it is as you say. This is some kung fu grammar work by Jesus. Uh, Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Well, the answer is yes, and the answer is no. Yes, he is the king of the Jews, and he's the king of Rome, and he's the king of New England, and he's the king of all creation. But Pilate has no frame of reference for understanding that. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? No, not in the way that Pilate thinks of kings. He's not Pilate's type of king. And so Jesus answers in a way similar to other places in chapter 26 where he's confronted with hard questions and there's no easy answer. Jesus says, you've said it. What what you've said, that will work. Now, these are the only words that Jesus speaks in this scene. There are more accusations to come. The Jewish leaders uh, are serious about having Jesus condemned to death. Uh, But throughout the whole episode, what's interesting to me is Pilate grows in his sympathy towards Jesus, and he even gets Jesus' title right. You can see his sympathies growing uh, as the developments unfold. Uh, His sympathy is seen in that he gives the crowd a choice. He, He says, who do you want me to release? This is our tradition. At this holiday season, I always release one prisoner. Who do you want? Barabbas, the terrorist scoundrel? Or Jesus, and what does he call him? Jesus who is called Christ. So, so which one do you want? Common sense would say they'd look at the options and go, ah, Jesus is better than Barabbas. But that's not what they say. They've been convinced by the religious leaders. They say, give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. He asks the same question repeatedly, gives them multiple chances. Who should I release? What should I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And their answer intensifies every time. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Finally, Pilate recognizes he's got a riot brewing on his hands. He's got to put this down in some way. And so in an attempt to clear his name and to acquiesce to the angry mob, washes his hands in this symbolic act and says, Psh, I'm innocent. This is all on you. Now, here's the problem. Pilate's not innocent doesn't matter how much he washes his hands. He's got power over innocent life. He's not innocent in this setting. He's sympathetic towards Jesus. The great irony in this is that when he calls Jesus the king of the Jews, he's right. This is exactly who Jesus is. Judas, or excuse me, Pilate and the others unwittingly get Jesus' identity right when they call him king of the Jews. That title means something, and it means something huge and profound. But it's such a sad thing for people like Pilate and people like us to be sympathetic towards Jesus, even get his titles right, and yet miss the mark entirely on who he is. You and I know Pilate's position well. To find something 
admirable in Jesus. A good teacher. He's sacrificial. He cares for the poor and the broken and the hurting. Those are things that tug at our hearts. And we may even have some religious experiences that give us titles to affix to his name. King of the Jews. Better than that, King of Kings. We sing songs about that. We can like him. We can have titles for him. But we can miss out entirely on trusting in Jesus as the one who will rescue us. If Jesus is king, that means something for us. It means something profound in the way we think about him and the way we live our lives. Jesus is indeed the king. The problem is you and I treat him like he's our servant. We treat him like this cosmic vending machine. We, we throw in 50 cents worth of prayer and expect Jesus to spit out the thing that we want, when we want, how we want. We relate to him as if we are the kings. He is the servant. But if Jesus is king, then that means he alone is king. There's no room on the throne for me or you or anyone else. He alone is king. That puts us as servants. If Jesus is king, then I live in his kingdom as one of his subjects. If he's king, then I live in his kingdom according to his law. I don't come to him and tell him this is what our culture has decided is appropriate for us in our living. We come to Jesus and say, I want to pattern my life after what you have said and dictated and instructed for me. If, if Jesus is my king, then I'm going to pattern my life after him. If Jesus is my king, my allegiance is to him through and through. When we read this passage, we, don't, we want to get to the end of it and we want to say to ourselves, like, I don't want to miss what Pilate missed. The question we would ask is this, is Jesus my king? Not do I know the title, do I, do I know it from my soul? He is king of my life. I am surrendered to him. He is my everything. I live in his kingdom under his rule, under his good, gracious law. He's got to be your king. This morning the passage is telling us this. Jesus is a betrayed life giver. Jesus is a dismissed king. In this last section, the third portrait of Jesus that emerges is Jesus is the rejected Savior. Verses 20 through 26. The scene gets so much worse as Pilate talks to the people, as he pleads with them. In a sense, uh, there's this sick interchange. Who do you want released? We want Barabbas. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. What about Jesus? Crucify him. This is on you. Then yes, his blood be on us and our children. I, I think verse 24 is one of the most troubling verses in all of Scripture. Or verse 25, excuse me. The, the accountability for this is, is across the board. Everyone in the scene is guilty. The religious leaders, the crowd, Pilate, Judas, everyone is guilty in this scene. And the end result is that Jesus is utterly rejected by, this, by his people. No one pleads Jesus' case, not one person. So I think there are implications here for the church. If Jesus was rejected by the crowd, what sort of reception should his followers expect today? It seems to me that we should be ready to meet with the same rejection, the same hardship that Jesus faced. If his message was rejected, his message today will be rejected. If they hated him, they will hate 
his followers today. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is inherently divisive and offensive. Now, that does not give us license to be jerks. That doesn't mean we get permission to be cold or indifferent to people on the outside of the faith. But we just know that the gospel by its very nature is offensive, it is divisive, and because of this, the Christian voice is facing and will face continued opposition and silencing even violence. Our own nation is seeing very rapidly the silencing of the Christian voice in the public sphere. Uh, 2015 story came out of Washington State of a football coach at Bremerton High School. His name's Joe Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy had a long-standing tradition. At the end of every football game, he'd go out to the 50-yard line by himself, and he would kneel and pray, quick little prayer of thanksgiving to God. Uh, never invited players, never forced players, never prayed out loud, just kneeled in silent prayer at the 50-yard line when the game was over. Well, over time, some Christian players noticed this, and they asked if they could pray alongside him. And Coach Joe said, it's a free country. Sure. So he went out, he would kneel and pray, they would kneel and pray, nothing organized, coerced, forced, or vocal. And he got fired. It's inappropriate, it's not the place for it, but we'll give you a room in the school where you can go and pray out of public sight. Why? Because Christianity is inherently offensive. It is seen as hate and violence and hurt in increasing ways. And, and you know what? A- around the world, a lot worse is happening than coaches losing their job. I read an article this week about Christians who still remain in Syria, the few who do face unbelievable persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. The opposition that we see Jesus endure at the cross is unique in that it it is for our salvation, but it is also shared in that you and I follow in the path of a crucified Savior. We don't follow a Savior who lived his life in opulence and comfort. We follow one who was rejected and despised. And if that's the way it went for Jesus, isn't that going to be the way it goes for his church? So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we can look around and go, yep, you're right, New England stinks, look at all these cold, hard sinners, we'll just have our church and call it a day. Or, or we recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first and second centuries did not spread in an environment of religious freedom. It spread in the midst of persecution. The book of Hebrews details this for us in gross detail, the way God's people suffered in the name of Jesus Christ. And yet the gospel spreads and takes root in hearts and lives are transformed and changed through common people like me and you. And so why wouldn't the gospel get traction in New England? Why wouldn't lives be changed so that those who on one day stand opposed to Jesus on the next day are awakened to faith in him? He may be an opposed savior, but to some he will be the welcomed savior. And that's where you and I have a role to play. Brothers and sisters, you've got to bring someone to church with you on Easter Sunday. You could, you could be ahead of the game and bring them next Sunday if you want. 
We've got to make room in our church for people who don't know how to dress the way we dress and stand up and sit down the way we stand up and sit down, who don't know the routines, who don't know how far they can bring their Dunkin' Donuts coffee into the church before they've got to get rid of it. We've got to bring those people in, and you're the, you're the way we do that. You've got to bring in people who are so convinced that they're good and they're right that, that they've got to be confronted with the reality of the gospel. And so we've got little postcards downstairs that you can use to invite people to, uh, to Easter services. Those ought to be gone, and they ought to be used, not as bookmarks, but as invitations and information pieces to coworkers and friends and neighbors. You are the one to do this thing. And then if you've got people in your life who just are completely lost but would be up for an honest intellectual investigation of Christianity, then you've got to invite them to Christianity Explored. The people that we're inviting to that are likely people who stand in opposition at some point to the message of the gospel, but the goal is that they would see Jesus truly for who he is and faith would be awakened in them. You are the one who has to do these things. You've got to use your kitchen table as a ministry tool, bake casseroles for the kingdom of God, have people in your home, love them, cherish them, show them Jesus and speak Jesus to them. You have to do it. Now, no one said amen, and I don't need you to say amen to know I'm right. Church, you have to do this. This is our glad and glorious work when the world rises up in opposition against Jesus Christ. Oh, the gospel gets a louder hearing, a clearer hearing, and it is a hearing even at the expense of our own comforts and freedoms and life, if that's what it would require. So we've seen this beautiful picture of Jesus this morning. He's a life giver. He is the king. He is the savior. He forgives sinners. He heals the broken. He's the gracious reigning king that we submit to. He's the savior of our souls whom we once were rebels against, but now we've been rescued by. It's a beautiful portrait. A few years ago, Starbucks ran a, a campaign where they they. They, they called it the way I see it. And so they printed on their cups different sayings from people, little words of wisdom and, and, and insights. And cup number 247 of the way I see it was by a guy named Bill Scheel, who identifies himself as uh, a Starbucks customer from Ontario and a modern-day nobody. And he said this. He says, why in moments of crisis do we ask God for strength and help? As cognitive beings, we would ask something that may well be a figment of our imaginations for guidance. Why not search inside ourselves for the power to overcome? After all, we are strong enough to cause most of the catastrophes we need to endure. So that's, that's advice from a modern-day nobody. Now, we can agree with Bill that we are, more often than not, the causes of our own catastrophes. But here's where we part ways with Bill Schill and this Starbucks cup. Uh, if, if we look inside ourselves for our deliverance and our help and our rescue, we're just going to find more catastrophe. Looking inside myself to fix my problems is like giving me a bucket of mud to clean up mud. It's not going to happen. The story of the Bible is that when we look inside and we see our brokenness, our betrayal, our lack of recognition, our opposition to Jesus, when we see those things, we can look up and we will find one who gives life, a king forever, a savior of our souls. We look up and we find Jesus who loves us 
who welcomes us, who calls us to his side. And so it's in the silence and darkness of the cross that this beautiful portrait emerges of Jesus. And he calls to you, come to life, come to the king, come to salvation, come to Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful, grateful for one who gives life, the king who reigns, the savior who rescues us from our sin. God, this morning, my hope is that your word has brought hope and encouragement to friends in here that don't know you as their savior. And Lord, maybe today, this is the day where their journey comes to this incredible apex where they're tired of doing all this on their own, tired of relying on religious deeds or good intentions, and they're ready to trust in the beautiful Savior to rescue them. Lord, awaken faith. Lead them in the way of life. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would cling to Jesus in all of the ways he is rejected, despised, betrayed. Lord, that we would find our identity in him. That in doing so, we would not find ourselves or the church beaten down or destroyed far from it, stronger than ever, especially in a land, in a world that cannot stand the message of life and love. Give us boldness in our witness. Give us an urgency in our witness. Give us compassion in our witness as we follow in the footsteps of our crucified and risen Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.